being seated this morning, would you please turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 4. Good morning, church. If you have a pew Bible, that's going to be page 941. We go through Romans 4. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations." in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, or his faith was strengthened as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions, our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us, Heavenly Father, as we dive into a a significant, a monumental portion of the scriptures here. Help us to grasp the implications. Help us to understand 
your word that it might open our eyes and turn our hearts towards Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Pastor Andrew has been taking us through the life of Abraham over through our series in the, from the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 25. And some of you may be familiar. Many of you are probably familiar with Abraham and his story. Uh, if not, go to our sermon series on Abraham. You'll get all the details there. But we're going to take a look this morning at how the Apostle Paul interprets and, and uh, applies a particular statement concerning Abraham taken from Genesis chapter 15. Now, God had made several promises to Abraham. Abraham had been called forth by God to leave his father's house in Mesopotamia. He made the long, arduous journey to Canaan on the promise of God that he would give him this land. He made several promises to him. And God had promised Abraham that his servant will not be his heir. He had promised Abraham a son. And after many years of waiting patiently and impatiently, Abraham said, Well, I have a son. And Genesis 15 recounts that promise. And God said that he will have his very own son through Sarah, his wife, and that his descendants shall be as numerous as the stars overhead in the vast eastern sky. Now, this seemingly impossible promise made to Abraham by God Most High. And the inspired author makes this remarkable statement concerning Abraham's response to the promise. Look at me at verse 3 of chapter 4 here. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was this belief, this entrustment in God's promises that we call faith. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul will draw from the life of Abraham to demonstrate how God justifies the ungodly through faith. Now, this is a bit like, anytime you go into the book of Romans, people, it's like going to the Grand Canyon. Okay, And so there's a couple ways to see the Grand Canyon. You can do a, a dive into it like the Jamesons did last year. You can crawl from the uh, south rim down there, spend the night, go up the north rim, see every nook and cranny. The other way is to take a bus tour. And that's all we have time for this morning. Now, I have taken the bus tour, and I can assure you, you will be overwhelmed by what you see even on a bus tour. So that's how we're going to do it this morning. And here's our visitor's map for this morning. In Romans chapter 4, Paul describes God's declaration of righteousness to Abraham by making four comparisons. First, he compares the one who works with the one who believes in verses 1 through 8. In verses 9 through 12, he compares the circumcised with the uncircumcised. In verses 13 to 17, he compares law keepers and promised believers. And finally, in verses 18 to 25, he compares the promise anticipated with the promise fulfilled. Now, just to get the context of Romans so far, in the first three letters of his, uh, first three chapters of this letter to the Romans, Paul has been making his argument that everyone is guilty before God, both Jews and Gentiles. He quotes Psalm 14 and, verse, and Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which explicitly states that there is no one who is righteous before God, not even one. And the last verses in Romans uh, chapter 3, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And at the end of chapter 3, he introduces the reality that God has determined to make a way for his people to be right before God through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. By believing and placing our trust in the fact that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the cross, and he was raised up on the third day according to the scriptures, 
God declares us to be righteous. In other words, we're not made with right with God by trying to impress God or by our works or by anything we can do or say. And to prove his argument, Paul now dips into the life of Abraham to make his point. Now, it's important to understand how this could be confusing because to the Jews, Abraham was the model of obedience. One commentator says that they saw Abraham as an outstanding person who who had kept the provisions of the law before the law was, in fact, laid down. Another states, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. Now, it is true that Abraham obeyed God in certain regards. But if there's anything we've learned about Abraham from our study so far, it's that God is very patient. Yes, Abraham obeyed God's command to depart from his father's house and travel to Canaan. But that was followed by Abraham giving his wife to Pharaoh and saying, she's my sister. After God made the covenant with Abraham and he believed God's promise that he was have his own son, he takes up Sarah on her offer to take Hagar as his concubine and gives birth to Ishmael and all the problems that generated from that. And after Abraham's remarkable intercession for Sodom in chapter 18 and 19, that the righteous might be spared, he again gives his wife to Abimelech, another king, with the same sister story. I think any rational analysis of Abraham's life would have to acknowledge that his acts of obedience were generally followed by acts of sinful unbelief. And that is Paul's point here in Romans 4. You see, it was not Abraham's obedience, but it was his belief in God's promises that God caused that caused God to declare that he was righteous. And in this way, Abraham is just like each one of us who've come to believe in God's promise in the gospel, as we'll see in our text. Now, look with me in verses 1 through 8. Paul begins his own analysis by comparing the one who works and the one who believes. Specifically, look at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul makes the statement that if Abraham was declared righteous, that's what justified means. I'll get into that in just a few minutes. If he was righteous by what he did, in other words, his works, then he would have a basis for boasting that that was why he was right with God. Look at all these wonderful things that I've done. That's the position of the Jewish writers that we discussed earlier. But as I mentioned, Abraham's works of obedience were generally followed by his rather blatant works of disobedience. And those weren't anything to boast about at all. That's Paul's point exactly. And that's why in verse 3, he quotes from Genesis 15. Look with me there. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice that the word believed implies more than just acknowledging a fact. No, it implies an entrustment, something that I'm going to act upon. Think of a lifeline if you've fallen out of a boat. Now, I've not had that wonderful experience myself, but you can imagine it. You don't merely believe in the fact that someone's thrown a rope to you. No, you believe in the rope enough to take hold of it and let the person who threw it to you pull you back in. This is particularly true in Loxahatchee where there's alligators. Now, that's what the Bible calls faith. Faith is more than mere belief. It is an entrustment in something. 
And in the Bible, faith is always an entrustment in the promises of God. Abraham believed God. And that's why it says, in other words, Abraham believed in what God had promised, that he would have a son and innumerable descendants. Now, because God caused Abraham to believe that God would keep his promise to him, God in turn gave something else to Abraham. He took the faith that he had given to Abraham, and he counted that to Abraham as righteousness. He declared that Abraham was in right standing with God. That's the great battle of the ages, isn't it? How can I be right with God? First, who is God? And then, because I'm aware of who he is by just looking at his creation, I need to know, how can I be right with this God when my conscience condemns me, my conscience calls me guilty for what I've done and what I've failed to do? How can I be right with this God? You might say that the the Bible says that he was credited or even reckoned. And the same verb applies like 11 times throughout our passage. This is what the Bible calls justification. God declared that Abraham was justified. He was declared just. He was declared righteous because he believed God's promise. This is critically important, not just to Paul's arguments, but to our own understanding. If we were to think that Abraham was counted righteous because he had obeyed God, we would have to ignore all the times that he didn't obey God. And if we start thinking that we're counted righteous for all the times or the occasional times that we've obeyed God, we'd have to ignore all the times that we didn't obey God either. This is why Paul gives us examples of the one who works and the one who believes, or the one who trusts God. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Paul describes the reward of the one who works. He gets paid for what he's done. He gets what we call wages. His paycheck isn't a gift. It's not of grace. It's what he's earned. It's what he's merited. Now, if you get a job with an employer who agrees to pay you a certain amount every week or every two weeks, then every Friday or every, fri- every other Friday, you expect a paycheck, don't you? And if you don't get the paycheck, there's going to be a problem, isn't there? Why? Because you did the work. You need the money. Kids, your, your parents might make a deal with you, too. They might say, hey, look, you work hard. You get good grades at school this semester. Uh, well, you get a bike or we'll take you to SeaWorld or Legoland or someplace up in Orlando. So you work hard. You get good grades. And at the end of the semester, you're expecting that bike or that trip, aren't you? Hey, you promised. Those are your wages. But that's not how you and I are declared righteous before God, is it? Look at verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, underline that in your mind, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is so important to understand. Look at what God had done with Abraham. The scriptures tell us that Abraham was an idol worship down in lower Mesopotamia. There was nothing special about Abraham when God called him to go to Canaan. The only thing special about Abraham was God called him. This is what the Bible means when it says that we are saved by grace through faith. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, God gives us what we need to accomplish what he purposes. That is the essence of grace. God in his grace grants us faith. He gives us faith to believe in his promises. 
In chapter 10 of Romans, just a little bit down the Romans road here, Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing, and specifically by hearing the word of Christ. That's what we see in the life of Abraham. God spoke to Abraham, and hearing that word of God, Abraham was granted faith to believe the promises which God had made to him. Do you understand this, beloved? And if you need any further evidence that Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith and not because of his obedience or his works, look again at verse 5. God justifies the ungodly. Isn't that a remarkable truth? God takes his enemies and makes them his friends. God takes the ungodly and makes them his children. Do you see that? This man whom the Jews held up as the paragon of virtue and obedience, and there were some examples of that, Paul points out that Abraham was just as ungodly as the rest of us. Paul points out that he was ungodly, and that's why God includes the sections about Abraham's sins against Sarah when he gave her to Pharaoh and to Abimelech and when he had a child with Hagar to give us proof, evidence, that God justifies the ungodly. Now, if you want another example from this, there's one in the New Testament. Remember the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went in in Luke chapter 18. Both men go into the temple to pray. Do you remember that? The Pharisee looked up toward heaven and proceeded to describe all of his good works of obedience. He fasted, he tithed, and he thanked God that he wasn't like all those lowlifes like the tax collector behind him. He had that smug self-righteousness, which stinks like a bad potato in the pantry. This poor hypocrite had no idea what his heart was really like. But the tax collector had a better understanding of what he was really like. He stood in the back of the temple. He could not bring himself to look up to heaven. Instead, he cast his eyes to the ground and cried out for mercy because he knew he was a sinner. Jesus declared that this man went home justified because he humbled himself before God. Now back in our passage, Paul continues in verses 6 through 8 to explain what happens to the ungodly whom God justifies by his free grace. He quotes David from Psalm 32, and he describes the blessedness of those whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Our lawless deeds or acts of lawlessness, he says, are forgiven or pardoned in verse 7. Our sins are covered over and put out of sight. In fact, if you look at verse 8, according to David, the Lord will no longer count our sins against us, just as he did not count Abraham's sins against him. In the Greek, the the structure here is called an emphatic negative. And it reads like this. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will never, ever, ever count, reckon, consider his sins. When we hear these promises, friends, knowing what our hearts are really like and the sin which so easily besets us, it's hard to believe that God would be so kind as to never, ever, ever count our sins against us. And that is the essence of the gospel, isn't it? Because we do know our hearts. Like the tax collector, we plead for mercy to God. And because we know our God, we can trust him to be merciful to us because of Jesus' finished work on the cross 
and not because of anything we try to do for ourselves. We're going to go fairly quickly now through the next section where Paul compares the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles. Look with me at verses 9 through 12. Paul is going to explain how the Jews, what he calls the, the circumcised, have no benefit from their physical ancestry when it comes to being righteous before God. Now, the Jews, the ancient Jews, believed that they were privileged before God because they were the descendants of Abraham in the flesh, because of the circumcision. Yet Paul argues here that Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. In fact, he was justified by faith centuries before the law concerning circumcision was given. Verse 11 tells us that Abraham received the sign circumcision as a proof, a seal, an evidence that God had declared him to be righteous when Abraham believed God's promise to him. This is how Abraham is our spiritual father and why the Jews believed that he was their physical father. But you remember what happened when the Jews of Jesus' day confronted Jesus in John chapter 8? There's this fascinating encounter with him. They told him, Abraham is our father. At the same time, they were trying to kill Jesus. Jesus confronted them with their hypocrisy. And he told them that if they were really Abraham's children, they would believe in him as Abraham did in God's promises. In fact, Jesus told them something quite different about their ancestry. He said, you are your father, the devil. Isn't that a great how to do? Now that statement didn't apply to every Jewish person because the Bible tells us that many of the Jews believed in him, believed in Jesus. In our passage in verse 12, Paul acknowledged that Abraham was the father of the circumcised as well as the uncircumcised. But what both groups had in common was not the mark of circumcision, but walking in faith as Abraham did That means that Gentile believers were accepted as righteous just as Jewish believers were. Because the determining factor is not a physical mark in someone's flesh, but a heart marked by the grace of God. Now let's not assume, however, in our context, since we're Presbyterians and since we're Protestants, that we can just ignore this part because circumcision no longer applies to us. Because that would be a mistake. The reason for that is circumcision was a way of introducing a male member into the family, the covenant family of God. And we have a very similar, we have the same, exactly, the sacrament of baptism is the New Testament means of being introduced into the covenant family of God. Because we baptize our children and acknowledge them to be members of the covenant family, there might be a tendency to fall into the same mistake that the ancient Jews did. We might believe that because we were baptized and that our family belonged to a faithful church, that we too are Abraham's children simply because of that act of baptism. So we have to be careful there. We might, in our context, we might rephrase verse 12 to say that Abraham is the father of the baptized, who are not merely baptized, but who also walk in the faith of Father Abraham. Just as for the Jews, it wasn't circumcision that made them right with God. It isn't baptism that makes us right with God, but rather entrusting ourselves to Jesus and his promise of redemption. That is what faith looks like. 
in our next section, verses 13 to 17. Paul next compares the law keepers and the promised believers, which is really a continuation of his previous argument. Remember the promise to Abraham and to his descendant, and I'm going to use the word singularly there, his descendant, his offspring in verse 13. In the Greek, it's one, it's one, it's singular, it's offspring, not plural, that he would be the heir of the world, which is another way of saying that through his offspring, through this child, through this descendant, through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Who is the seed of Abraham? Want to guess? Galatians 3.16. Don't guess. Let me tell you. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 that the offspring singular of Abraham is Christ. Christ is the true heir of the world. The true son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. Since the promise was made on the basis of faith, it cannot be obtained by the law keepers. Those who want to be declared righteous merely by what they do. Rather, in verses 16 and 17, the promise is extended. Read it right there. I've got to find it here. I've got to get a bigger print. In the promise of the God in who in the presence of the God in whom he believed, it cannot be obtained. The promise is extended not only to those who are of the law, but also to those of the faith of Abraham. Now, Paul isn't including people who merely try to keep the law here. But rather, he, conclu- he includes believing Jews who loved God's law. This is who he's including, who also walked in the faith of Abraham in regard to the promise. You see, it's a mistake to think that as Christians, we don't love God's law. There is a, there is a, a segment of the evangelicalism who says the law doesn't apply to us, that we don't have to pay attention to it. But the inspired author of Psalm 119 writes this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. The Apostle John says in his letters that the laws, we love your law, we obey your commandments, and your commandments are not burdensome. Just like the believing Jews, we also love the law because it reveals the character of our Creator, Almighty God. But we place our trust in the only one who completely obeyed and fulfilled the law, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen so far how Paul compares the one who works and the one who believes in verses 1 through 8. In verses 9 through 12, he compares the circumcised and the uncircumcised. In verses 13 through 17, he compares the law keepers and the promised believers. Finally, in verses 18 through 25, Paul will compare the promise anticipated with the promise fulfilled. Our text tells us that the promise Abraham believed was that he would be father to many nations. We see this in verse 18, as the promise made by God as that he would have a son and descendants, so shall your offspring be. And in verse 19, we understand how difficult the challenge for was for Abraham. He was old, and his wife was old. How old? A hundred years. I'm fast approaching that myself. I can't even imagine. We just had a granddaughter by the grace of God. Her mother is not young either. Yet in spite of the fact that both Abraham and Sarah were well beyond the time of having a child, God had promised him a son. Verse 20 tells us that Abraham believed that promise. He clung to that promise. He held on to that promise for 25 long, hard years. Now, 
Take a look with me again in verse 20. Just take a look at this here. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Now, your translation might say that he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Or another translation might say he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. And I think that second translation better communicates the original language. If we're not careful here, we might think that Abraham built up his own faith. Kind of like when we go to the gym. Well, when someone else goes to the gym. (laughs) And they work out and get stronger. Yet the verb here is a passive. It's a passive. That means that something was done to him, not by him. Remember, it is the Holy Spirit who works faith in us. Not us working on our own faith. That, my friends, is a recipe for disaster. We saw in Genesis 16 what happened when Abraham tried to help God out by having a son with Hagar. That worked well, didn't it? It was and remains a disaster. Yet God remained faithful to his promise to Abraham. He did not count Abraham's sins against him, but instead he grew Abraham's faith and strengthened him in faith by the Spirit of God. And Abraham gave glory to God in the midst of this long struggle of faith. How did he give glory to God? Verse 21 tells us. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He remained convinced despite the facts. In the midst of all the facts of infertility, barrenness, domestic trouble with a barren wife and a hostile concubine, despite his acts of faith and his acts of sinfulness, Abraham was sustained by God in his faith. And verse 22 tells us that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The promise that Abraham received was a promise that was anticipated. He was waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. Now next week, Pastor Andrew is going to share with us the temporal fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 21 as he describes the birth of the promised son, Isaac. See, I've just held you to preaching Genesis 21. Yet here in our text, Beginning in verse 23, Paul begins to compare the anticipated promise with the ultimate fulfillment of that promise in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the anticipated son, the true offspring of Abraham, the fulfillment of the promise that God, of the promise of God that in him, in Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul states explicitly that what was said of Abraham wasn't merely intended for Abraham. But the words, verse 23 and 24, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And the next phrase, the specific wording of the phrase, it will be counted to us. It will be counted to us implies certainty. It will certainly be counted to us who believe. When commentator writes, to believers, God will credit righteousness just as he did to Abraham. And here in verse 24, Paul states the object of our faith. Me in verse 24 there. But for ours also it would be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. In other words, 
our faith is in the God whom Abraham believed back in verse 17, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that do not exist. From the deadness of Sarah's womb and Abraham's own frail body, God called forth Isaac. From the tomb in Bethany, God the Son called forth Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. And from the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, God the Father Father, by God the Spirit called forth Jesus the Nazarene, our text tells us, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The promise is the same for Abraham as it is for us. God who called Abraham from the darkness of pagan Mesopotamia into the land which he promised to give him also calls us out of the darkness of sin and into his marvelous light. As Abraham was declared righteous because he believed God, he believed in God's promise of a son, that he would be a father of many nations, so we too are declared righteous because we believe in God's promise in the gospel that God's own beloved son was delivered over for our sins and raised for our justification. Now let's briefly discuss what justification is and what it is not. Justification is a legal status, not a change of nature. The Shorter Catechism tells us that justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed or counted or reckoned to us and received by faith alone. Now, many of you have a driver's license. Some of you are hoping someday to get a driver's license. This license confers a legal status, allowing you the privilege of driving a car lawfully. Notice, however, that a driver's license doesn't make you a good driver. It just makes you a lawful driver. I've seen how some of you leave the parking lot after church, and I know you're counting the moments even now. So you may get pulled over by a police officer, hopefully not in our yard here, okay, for committing an infraction, speeding, or running a stop sign. But that's not a reason to take away your license. It simply means you have to pay a fine or go to driver's school. In a similar way, when God declares you to be righteous in his sight, it doesn't mean that you're no longer a sinner or that you'll become more Christ-like in that moment. It means that God is no longer counting your sins against you. Instead, he has counted or credited or reckoned your sins to his son, Jesus, who willingly bore the penalty for you and me on the cross. And he has taken Jesus' righteousness and counted it or credited or reckoned it to you so that you might have the righteousness of Christ instead of your own unrighteousness. Now, God does much more than just declare us to be righteous for Jesus' sake. He adopts us and makes us sons and daughters, and he sanctifies us over time, renewing us in the whole man after the image of God and enables us more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. But that's another sermon or two. Now, so far this morning... I have addressed many of you here, the ones who believe, the ones who are circumcised in heart and who walk in the faith of Abraham and those who love God's law while trusting in God's promise of redemption. 
But let me take a moment and address those of you who remain outside of Christ even now, who are relying instead on your own efforts to merit God's favor, who remain uncircumcised in your hearts, who vainly imagine that you can justify yourselves or that there is no consequence to remaining in your sins. Our passage this morning is no comfort to you. God's promise remains unfulfilled. You have not availed yourself of his forgiveness, and so you are not entitled to his blessing. While in this condition, you remain God's enemy, and you are subject to his perfect justice. Yet this morning, you've had the unqualified privilege of hearing his promises put forth and his offer of complete forgiveness made available to you today. So I plead with you that today, this morning, that you would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. God imparted faith to Abraham by the working of the Spirit. He still imparts faith to his people by that same Spirit. God's declaration of righteousness to Abraham was affirmed by the faith he gave to Abraham. God's declaration of our righteousness is affirmed by the faith he continues to work in us by through his spirit. Abraham is a type of God's people. You and me pointing forward to that great and uncountable cloud of witnesses who are called out of darkness into the light to give glory to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What righteousness was once revealed that sets the guilty free that justifies ungodly men and makes the filthy clean. A righteousness that proved to all your justice has been met and holy wrath is satisfied through one atoning death. Let's pray. Almighty God, the God of Abraham, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your word and for the faith which you have worked in us by your spirit. Having heard the word of truth this morning, may we entrust ourselves to God the Son, Jesus, who is delivered over for our sins and raised up that we might declare, be declared righteous in your sight. We know that our righteousness is not the result of what we have done or will do, but it is the righteousness of Christ that you have graciously granted to all who place their trust in Jesus. Be pleased to extend salvation to us as you empower us to believe your word and to trust in Christ alone. Amen.